My name is Bobby Crotty, and I have the privilege of being on Watermark staff and serving as the uh, minister to men. So ladies, usually the guys I get to talk to are all guys. Uh, I guess that makes sense. Maybe that's worldview right there. Um, so it's a blessing to have you all in here for sure. And uh, I want to just do a couple of, while everybody's um, wandering back in, this is the uh, handout I'm going to be working from, okay? And so I don't know if y'all are note takers or whatnot, but I want to give you permission to put your pens down and just listen, okay? If you feel like you have to take notes, uh, do. If you feel like I said something worthy of writing down, that'll be amazing to me. And so I really encourage you to just listen, because we're going to be talking about a lot of history that I hope is going to make sense of the you know, the Western civilization classes that you took in high school and college. Okay, so do I have any history majors in here? That's good. All right, I'm glad. Uh, any history teachers? No history professors or anything like that? Um, how many of you like history? Oh, so a bunch of people like history. Well, that's good, because we're going to be talking about the history of worldview. In other words, we're going to be talking about why we think the way we do. How did that uh, develop? Uh, and we're going to go back to the Greco-Roman Empire and bring it up through uh, today's. Sammy's already given you a great introduction to the idea of worldview, and he's also covered well postmodernism. And so I'm probably not going to spend much time talking about postmodernism, but we'll start out talking about you know, how the Romans thought, how they derived a lot of their thinking and philosophy from the Greeks, and we'll bring it forward to modern day. Okay? Um, so, before we start, I want to show you a couple of books. This book is called Total Truth. It's by a woman named Nancy Percy, and it is excellent. It is not light reading, but it is a great way to put you to sleep at night. Okay? Um, if you're having insomnia, this book will cure it. But this book is packed with truth that's really talking about worldview, okay? So that's Total Truth by Nancy Percy. Um, then second, we've got a great book that's written by Chuck Colson and also by Nancy Percy. Uh, they co-authored this book, and it's called How Now Shall We Live? And it, too, is a worldview book. It is uh, uh, one that uh, does a lot of what uh, Sammy just talked about, what I'm going to talk about, and then also what JP is going to talk about at the end, okay? So it's called uh, um, How Now Shall We Live? And it, this book is on sale downstairs. If after we get done you feel like that you can actually add to your um, wealth of knowledge by digging into these, I would encourage you to pick up this book. And then most especially, I would encourage you to pick up the book Why You Think the Way You Do, okay? And you will see that I have taken just about 99.9% .9 of everything I'm going to tell you right out of this book, okay? It is a great overview of the history of thought, a great overview of how we got to thinking the way that we do today. Sammy, I've got one question for you. Why did your parents leave when I got up to talk? Because I actually had a question for them. Well, I was going to ask them, um, to talk about Sammy as a two-year-old and whether you knew the value of no and uh, that sort of thing. Well, okay, I guess I won't get to do that, and I won't put Crystal on the spot to do it. 
Um, but I did bring my own cheering squad as well. My daughter Becky is back here in the back, and I didn't know she was actually going to be here, uh, but it is a blessing to uh, see her uh, sitting back there. So, Beck, thanks for being here. She just turned 27 the other day, celebrated a big birthday. All right. Okay, so now, what is a worldview? This is review. You learned all this from Sammy. So what is a worldview? A way you see the world. Yeah, it's simply a, a lens through which you look at reality. And what is truth? We Well, Sammy talked about that too. Truth is... Yeah, what conforms to reality, okay? And so who has a worldview? We all have worldviews, exactly. Even if we don't know it, we have a view of looking at life, okay? And so I thought Simi did a great job of talking about at the end why the Bible and why Christianity should inform our worldview. And I loved his passion where he talked about, hey, we have a great case and I like that especially since I used to be a lawyer. Uh, we do have a great case for why Scripture is true, why we can put our trust in Christ, and why uh, the Christian worldview is the one that not only makes the most sense, but it is the only worldview that can be lived out consistently. Okay, does that make sense? All right, so a uh, little more review. So why do worldview matters? Okay, Um let me get rolling on my slides here. This is actually, I was in Israel uh, about three weeks ago, and this is a picture of Caesarea Maritima, where uh, Herod the Great built a great seaport, uh, and uh, Caesarea uh, by the sea, it's also known as, was also the place that Paul defended his Christianity before uh, a couple of Roman governors. And we had a chance to sit in the amphitheater where Paul actually made his defense and listen to someone read Acts 26. And so if I forget to talk about the pictures as I go along, I've tried to put pictures on here because they'll probably be more interesting than what I'm saying. Uh, but I want you to uh, encourage me, if I forget to talk about it, remind me to do that. All right, and if the slide will advance. Okay, we just talked about this. This is actually the swimming pool. Uh, for the palace that Herod built right here at Caesarea. And you can see the little mosaic in front. And that little square was a pool that he used. He uh, is right there by the Mediterranean Sea, and he actually used it for uh, swimming just like we would today. All right, so now I'm almost caught up here. Um, so what do worldviews do? Well, let me give you just a, a couple of more things to kind of flesh out uh, the idea of worldview, and then we'll dive into the history. So they're descriptive because they give us uh, a view of the world, and they're also prescriptive because they give us a view for the world. Okay? Descriptive view of the world, prescriptive a view for the world. And they give you an explanation of the world and an interpretation of the world. And then finally, what's important really is how we live that out because they give you an application for the world as well. How, it's the kind of the so what question of how do we live this out? And so why do worldviews matter to us? Well, Sammy had a slide. Remember his pyramid slide? And up at the top, um, we have a worldview. 
And our worldview informs our values. And our values inform our actions. And so, really, the worldview is a fundamental orientation, and it's not so much uh, one that's thought out, but it's one that's lived out. And it's not really so much the, you know, which one you have, but it's which one has you. Okay, does that make sense? All right. And so why do they matter to us? Well, you know, culture is simply a reflection of the people's worldview. And so for society to function, as I I say on this slide, there's got to be a broad agreement about a set of values. And one of the reasons we're seeing the political divide in our country that we're seeing now, where you've got about half of the folks thinking and voting one way and half the folks thinking and voting the other, is that there's not uh, anymore a broad agreement on the set of values about what does it mean to be human. You know, we see that played out in the abortion debate where people are talking about, you know, when does life actually begin? What does it mean to be human? And you also see that played out in how we relate to each other. And then finally about what is our purpose in life? Okay, so how many of you know what your worldview is? Well, I won't ask you to raise your hands on that one, but how many of you knew you had a worldview before you walked in here? A lot of hands on that. That's good. Because that's what we're called to do is to not only um, understand our worldview, but then to go live it out on a consistent daily basis. And you know, in saying that, that's when you go from preaching to meddling. Because that's when, you know, the rubber meets the road. And when we come down to the point of how are we going to make daily decisions about how we live our lives? Okay, so um, the next question I want to ask um, is, so why, why the history lesson? So why should we take 40 of your good minutes uh, to try to uh, give you a little overview of how we got to this point? Um, let me give you a couple of uh, quotes, I think, that will uh, help us understand why this is so important. George Santayana is a uh, Spanish philosopher. Uh, how many have heard of old George? Well, that's good. Neither had I. Um, but he's got a famous quote. And he said, Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And one of the things I hope you're going to see from this is that as Sammy's talked about the prevalent worldviews today, you're going to see how much those different worldviews relate back to things that have happened throughout the course of history. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Uh, Friedrich Hegel is a German philosopher, and he says, The only thing we learn from history is that we learn nothing from history. Think about that for a second. And then finally, I love this quote from David McCulloch. Anybody read any of David McCulloch's uh, things? John Adams. He's written a bunch of books that are great. Uh, the John Adams book particularly I'd recommend to you. But he says, history is who we are and why we are the way we are. I think that really captures what worldview is about. Okay, and so why the history lesson? Well, I would suggest to you that um, the um, ability to understand your worldview rests on your understanding where your worldview came from. 
And I would also say to you that uh, um, to be able to understand your own worldview and particularly to be able to defend it in the marketplace of ideas when you're talking with other folks who have a different worldview, you have to understand where their worldview came from to be able to uh, uh, effectively and in a winsome and engaging way give an account for the hope that's within you. You know, 1 Peter 3.15 tells us that we're always to be ready as believers in Christ to give an account for the hope that's within us and to do it with gentleness and reverence. And to be able to do that, you need to understand where their worldview has come from. And then finally, I would suggest to you that uh, this is important because hopefully with this class today, you'll finally be able to make some sense out of those Western Civ classes that you sat through in college. How many of, how many of y'all have had a Western Civilization sort of course? Okay, yeah, most everybody in here. Um, I don't know about y'all, but those were the sort of things. I, I had one in my freshman year in college. I went to a college called Virginia Military Institute. And the thing I remember most about that class is that the professor was an expert shot with uh, blackboard erasers. Because if you fell asleep in his class, he, from 40 feet away across the room, would be able to zing you in the back of the room with an eraser upside the head. And there is nothing like being awakened in a class like that. Okay? But I hope that this class today is uh, going to be one that not only will keep you awake, but will help you say, okay, so that's kind of how we got to the point where we are. Okay? And so... You know, I would suggest to you that, uh, as this slide indicates, that really the key dynamic for the development of a Western worldview is the interaction of the Greek civilization, the Greco-Roman civilization, with Christianity. And we're going to talk about that. Here's a little picture from uh, a city in Israel where you can see the ruins left by Romans from, uh, uh, they had a huge earthquake in 750 or so A.D., and the Roman uh, ruins were toppled, and uh, um, it's a city called Beth Shan, which is one of the cities of the Decapolis mentioned in the New Testament. Um, if you've ever read about the life of Saul, when Saul was killed, uh, the Philistines took his body and hung it on the wall of Beth Shan. And so it was interesting to be in this city. But uh, uh, you can see that it was the interaction of the Roman civilization, the Roman Empire, with a Christian worldview that really uh, began the development of the Western mindset that has predominated up until really the uh, um, 1900s. Okay? All right, so let's take a look at the timeline here because I'm going to focus on four periods. Okay? We're going to look at the Greco-Roman uh, era, and I've really simplified and tried to make this where uh, it'll be something that you can remember. And think about that as lasting for about a thousand years. You know, um, you've heard probably the phrase Pax Romana, and uh, it was a time where the peace and prosperity of the Roman Empire extended over the uh, realm where Rome really was the world. Uh, back in those days, and was the dominant Roman, uh, the dominant world power, and so think about the uh, Greco-Roman Empire is running from 500 BC to AD 500. Okay, then the second period we'll look at is the Middle Ages. Okay, 
And so the Middle Ages, anybody know what the Middle Ages, what it's in the middle of? Why it's called the Middle Ages? Well, it's in the middle of, it's between the Greco-Roman Empire and really uh, modern times. And if you think of about the Middle Ages as running from 8500 to 1500, and then from 1500 to uh, about 1950 is when we look at the modern time frame. Okay? And then the final period we'll look at, and really Sammy's done a great job on covering the postmodern mindset, so we won't spend a lot of time camping out there, but that really runs from about 1950 uh, up to current times. Okay? So Greco-Roman Empire from uh, 500 B.C. to A.D. 500, Middle Ages between the Greco-Roman Empire and uh, modern times runs from uh, about A.D. 500 to uh, 1500. And then um, modern era runs from 1500 to 1950. And uh, the uh, final postmodern era is what we're in right now, and it runs from 1950 up through today. Okay, And so for each of these periods, we're going to look at how the people viewed truth. We're going to look at where they went to find truth. And finally, we're going to look at what was the goal of their inquiry. Okay, And so in doing this, we're all going to become philosophers because we're going to be looking at a couple of things. And the first is metaphysics, and that's a, a big scary word that, you know, so what the heck is that? Well, that's just reality and truth and what composes that. And the next one I want to put up on the board, because this is what we're really going to be doing. We're going to become epistemologists because we're going to be looking at um, the nature and scope of knowledge. Okay, so, you know, it's a big word, but it comes from the Greek word episteme, which simply means knowledge. And from the uh, um, Greek word logos, um, you know, we know that is the word, but it also is used like in theology. What is theology? Well, it's the study of God. Theos, God, logos, study of. And so epistemology is simply the study of knowledge, okay? And uh, um, it addresses these questions that we've just outlined. What's knowledge? How's it acquired? And is it really possible to know things? Okay, because people are going to come along who are going to say, you know, it's really not possible to know anything. And we'll talk about that. But So we're going to become epistemologists by simply looking at uh, this information and being able to uh, see where we are. And so right at the outset, I wanted to give you a chart that will help you understand your own worldview. So here it is. You can find your worldview on this chart. What do you think? Yeah, that's exactly what I would say. I don't know that I want a worldview if I have to do this to get to it. Uh, but if you actually take some time, and that's why I put it in the slide to look at it, you'll see where you do end up, okay? Because the questions that are asked are pretty simple ones. Uh, but, you know, that I put that up there obviously to get a laugh. I got a little bit of a laugh, uh, not, not much of a laugh. Um, but it's one where you can start in the upper left and see where you end up. I'll let you do that on your own time. All right, so let's move to the uh, Greco-Roman era. And uh, let me just kind of set the stage here. So in the Roman world, P 
peace and prosperity reigned. Wherever um, Roman legions went, they brought the uh, um, brutality of battle and conquest, but behind it came peace and prosperity. And it was a society that was marked by efficient, even though at times very ruthless, sort of government. And it's also something uh, um, that was quite an engineering uh, society. Their engineering uh, feats are still a marvel today. If you think about the system of roads that Rome created, the aqueducts and things like that so that they could get people traveling back and forth and trade could happen and the uh, aqueduct would get the water to where the people were. Those are, uh, are really engineering marvels still today. Okay? And, you know, what's interesting, and uh, this is uh, kind of off the subject, but um, when uh, Paul writes in Galatians and he talks about um, um, Christ coming in the fullness of times, well, part of that fullness of times was the peace and prosperity that uh, Rome brought. And their system of roads permitted people to travel around. And ultimately, what does that do? It allows the gospel to spread much more quickly than it ever would have without that system of roads. And so it's part of that fullness of times that, that God used to spread his word throughout the known world at that time. Okay? But there was also a, a brutal dark side to Rome. And, you know, it's something that we all know about. People were killed for public spectacle, for public entertainment. And... Um, Particularly in the latter days of the empire, uh, Rome became so decadent and fixed on the flesh that you know the uh, immorality and whatnot of the Roman Empire in its latter stages is still legendary today. They still make movies about it. Okay, but within the Roman Empire, really, they look back. You know, think of Rome as they were doers, they were engineers, they were fighters, they were going out and conquer the the known world. And so they looked to the ancient Greeks. They weren't so ancient at that day. Uh, but the ideas from Plato really towered over all the Roman thought and over all the other philosophical schools uh, that were uh, competing for time. This is a picture by um, the painter Raphael uh, that uh, depicts the school of Athens. And uh, one of Plato's great works is The Republic. And you can see him standing there next to uh, Aristotle. Plato's on the left and Aristotle on the right in the front uh, piece of the, uh, of the book. And, you know, Plato was a student of Socrates, and Aristotle was Plato's student. And he um, came up with a mindset that said, hey, to understand what's going on in the world, you have to look at what is real, and what can we know, and how can we know it. And what does that sound like? Well, it sounds like what we just talked about, about epistemology, okay? And so Plato was uh, uh, focused on those sort of things. Um, here's an interesting little tidbit about uh, um, our man Plato. He was originally named Aristocles, okay? But his wrestling coach gave him the nickname uh, Platon, which means broad, Okay? He's a big guy. He was a wrestler. I, you know, I'm a big guy. I, I relate to the idea of a big guy. And, uh, in fact, he wrestled in the Isthmian Games, which was one of the famous games in, the, in old Greece. Okay? And so um, 
he was a, um, as I said, a, a student of Socrates, and really preserved. Socrates really did not leave any writings, but we know from the writings of Plato a lot about the life and ultimately the death of Socrates. And then he also had a student named Aristotle that uh, we learn even more from and we'll talk about in a little bit. Okay? And so to understand Plato, you really have to look at the basic questions of what makes up a worldview. What's real? What's truth? Which, you know, we've talked about as being metaphysics or you know, that which conforms to reality. And so what can we know and how can we know it? And so, you know, again, that sounds a lot like epistemology. And in um, the ancient world, Plato put forth a, a, a worldview that focused on ideas. Okay? And so, in understanding Plato, you really have to understand the difference between universals and particulars, or the one versus the many. And so, if you walk in a forest, you can see thousands of leaves on trees. Okay? So, those are the many. But from the idea of those leaves, you can distill from that an idea of what a leaf is. And that's the one. And so, uh, Plato put forth the idea that uh, uh, it was ideas, it was the uh, looking at the universals that gave meaning to worldview. And so he saw that as the foundation for reality, to look at the ideas rather than to look at the particulars. And as worldview, as the uh, ages go on, you're going to see a shift from the universal to the particular to where people were looking at, well, what's real and what can I see and how can I see it and how can I define it and how can I apply a scientific method to it? Okay? And so he used clear thinking as logic, as the keys to truth, and he developed his idealism to a, a point where uh, he could explain everything from the nature of God on the one hand to the existence of dirt on the other. And he looked for an all-encompassing system that would allow him to give a rational explanation for everything in the world. Okay? You know, um, one of the things um, I heard someone say during the break is that, hey, it looked like we had so much... Um, stuff to cover that it was almost uh, um, you know impossible to ask a question and so let me just stop for a second and say hey if you have questions as we go along uh, I invite you to ask questions and we're going to do at the end after JP gets done the three of us will come up and we'll just do a little panel and take all your questions and so if it's something that's just burning that you uh, think you want to ask right now uh, go on and ask it and uh, I may defer because I, it may be something that I'm going to answer later on, or it may, I may defer because I don't know the answer. Um, but um, write that question down, and we'll definitely give you a chance at the end uh, to uh, be able to ask all your questions. Okay? Does that make sense? All right, so Plato's got this system that explains everything in the world, and that came to the fore and came to be what really um, was the predominant worldview in the Roman Empire. It was the most common religion among the ed educated classes, the patricians, uh, they called themselves in the Roman Empire. And it looked at that, hey, you know, you really can't judge anything without an absolute standard for measurement. That was something that, you know, uh, a biblical worldview would agree with. And our standard for measurement is 
uh, God and how he's revealed himself in Scripture. Plato called that standard the one. And the goal of his philosophy as lived out by the Romans was contemplation uh, in a way that would allow you to uh, achieve union with the one. Okay, And here's a picture of the Roman Forum uh, as seen today. You can see the Colosseum in the background. And as the Roman um, folks were thinking, they were simply trying to get closer to the one. And the closer they were to the one gave them a higher status in the cosmic order. And it also provided a way to determine right and wrong. And it uh, uh, served as the foundation, really, to give each, pla- each person a place in the society. And that was done according to capabilities. And, you know, we describe the Roman Empire as an aristocracy, which is simply a, a word that means rule of the best. Okay? And the best people in the Roman Empire were those who, through contemplation, achieved uh, union with the one. But it resulted in some problems as well. And so the nobility as the uh, Roman Republic started in the beginning of uh, um, even the, uh, um, the role of the Caesars and whatnot, uh, they worked the land and they were responsible for being a part, working part of society. But then as contemplation of the one became to be viewed as more important, then they stopped work and they used slaves instead to do their work. And this caused them to devote themselves to lives of luxury that would give them an opportunity to be able to uh, engage in contemplation and whatnot. And, you know, whenever uh, man is given a chance to stop working and live a life of luxury, what happens? Yeah, they start focusing on themselves and what gives them pleasure, and they look at the um, activities that cater to the flesh. And whenever we start doing that, what do we end up with? Not in a good place, okay? I mean, that's true today. We see that today. We can see that in our own society and how, in some ways, a lot of how we've moved from a society that has worked and worked hard to one in which the the goal of work now is to make enough money so that you don't have to work, okay? And I'm not here to wail on making money. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But, again, the question is, what are you going to do with it? And is it going to give you an opportunity to go do something else to serve others? You know, when Sammy was talking, it just made me think that, you know, the the biblical idea of loving God and loving others is simple. And it is something that is livable. And so when we work to make money to be able to share it with others, when we work to make money to give us the opportunity to go and serve others, then we're doing something that's good. But when we work to serve ourselves and to serve our own fleshly desires, we'll end up in a bad place. Okay? And so this led to excesses. And uh, um, as we transition from the Greco-Roman time, I want to just give you a couple of thoughts about uh, uh, a little summary of the Roman worldview. And so when you think Greco-Roman Empire, think Plato, okay? And think the idea of Neoplatism. That's just a big word that means new... uh, Um, ideas of Plato, okay? 
And so this was the, the mindset. And so just as the Greeks were thinkers and valued learning and philosophy, the Romans were doers, and they built things, and they conquered people and whatnot, and they valued building roads and building stuff. And so they looked to the Greek uh, ideas to inform their thinking, but they still felt that truth was knowable and that it was certain and that there were absolutes and also right and wrong, and they tried to build a system that explained everything. Okay? And so when you think the Greco-Roman Empire, think that way, that they used the ideas of the Greeks, that they looked as tru- at truth as knowable and certain, and that there were both absolutes and right and wrong. And so now when you take and overlay on that base, the Christian worldview has happened... You know, we see this obscure first century sect really coming to the fore. And the, the real pivotal point for the ascendancy of Christianity in the Roman world uh, happened under the reign of Constantine. Okay? Constantine was an emperor who ru- ruled in the uh, 300s. Um, he consolidated his power as being the guy. Uh, in a battle called the Battle of Milvian Bridge, which occurred in uh, uh, 313. And um, uh, he had a vision before that battle, uh, a vision that you know uh, he attributed as coming um, from the Lord. And uh, the vision said, if you will take um, on your shields daub red for the symbol of the cross, um, you'll be victorious. And he did that. He had all his soldiers do that. Uh, the depiction, again, is of that battle. It was fought um, uh, in front of a bridge that leads into the northern part of the city of Rome. And he was victorious. And it caused him to become a believer in Christ. Okay? And so, in doing that, he uh, um, issued what's called the Edict of Milan... And it was a, uh, an edict from the emperor that said that Christianity, which once was banned in the Roman Empire, would now be legalized. It didn't make it the state religion, but it made it something that it was okay to pursue. And, you know, just think about it. With the emperor being the one who's standing up and saying, hey, I have believed in Christ and converted to Christianity, it obviously became something that uh, took hold in the Roman Empire. Okay, so the the Battle of Milvian Bridge and the Edict of Milan were two signal events in the spread of Christianity. Okay, as it became something that influenced the Roman worldview. And so, Sammy's already talked a little bit about this and done a great job of underscoring, you know, we have a personal God. We have a God who's the creator of all things and really shapes what it means to be human. And I love um, this, uh, Sammy alluded to it, but let me just give you, really if you look at the nature of God, you have three pairs of descriptions that are in tension. I don't have a slide on this, but God is infinite, but at the same time He's personal. And He is the creator of the world, and at the same time He's the sustainer of it. And He is viewed as being transcendent, in other words, over the whole world, but He's also viewed as being imminent that He has come to live with His people. And He does that today through us as believers in Christ, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And He did that in uh, uh, Old Testament times where He actually tabernacled 
among his people where he came and inhabited the tabernacle and then ultimately the Holy of Holies in the temple. And so, infinite but personal, creator but sustainer, and transcendent but imminent. And so God is created in man's image and he was created to steward over and to reign over creation. And JP's going to uh, talk a lot about this as our role as rulers. Okay? And that gives man value. It also gives us something to do. You know, God gave Adam and Eve work to do in the garden before the fall ever occurred. Okay? So work is going to be, has been, and will continue to be part of our nature to work. Because, you know, as we've already talked about, when we don't work, you know, it ends up in a bad place for us. And it also roots the idea of ethics or right and wrong in God's character. He becomes the absolute standard for us judging right and wrong. All right. And so, if you think about Christianity as a worldview, it's really based more on ideas rather than practices. And you know, you may hear that and say, well, that sounds a little bit strange because aren't we supposed to be out doing the works of God? Well, we are, but only after we first have a relationship with Him by having trusted in His Son. And it's because of that relationship, because of who He made us to be. Ephesians 2.10 says that there are good works created that we might walk in those good works. Okay, And so it's the ideas come first, and after we have trusted in Christ, He is more than just an idea today because we know that He is someone who physically lived on earth and that He lived a sinless life that would give us the opportunity to believe in Him. Okay, And so since Christianity is formed on ideas, it makes study, what you guys are doing here today, um, more important and uh, and really in a different way from either Islam or, or even Judaism where study becomes an essential part of what it means to be a Christ follower. We have to know his word to be able to go live it out. And it also makes work and service really an act of humility on our part and an act of obedience, that we're called to serve um, in the same way that the the one who came to serve and not to be served, uh, Jesus, as our example. that makes sense? Okay. All right, so now we're going to make the transition from the Greco-Roman times. Uh, Again, I picked the uh, date as uh, 500 for just kind of an arbitrary way to trace it. You know, Rome was overrun by Germanic tribes, and we had the fall of Rome. And it started uh, a period that some uh, historians have called the Dark Ages, and it's really part of the Middle Ages. They call it the Dark Ages because there weren't any... um, real sources of written information about this period of time. Okay, but not surprisingly, the one institution that remains standing even in the midst of the chaos of the fall of the uh, Roman Empire is the church. It is an island and continues to be an island of stability even in the chaos that's going around. And I've put up here uh, an icon of uh, St. Patrick. You can see, uh, if you get up here up close, uh, he's holding a shamrock. And uh, let me tell you a little bit about Patrick. Uh, It's an interesting story. He was a uh, guy that at the age of 16 
was captured by uh, Irish raiders. Uh, he was living in Roman Britain at the time. Excuse me. And so he was taken captive, and uh, uh, he was taken to Ireland, and he lived as a slave uh, for six years. And as a slave, um, he tended sheep. Does that sound familiar? And he learned a lot of life lessons tending those sheep. You know, it makes me think of David. It makes me think of uh, Jesus' teaching in um, uh, John 10. If you missed church last Sunday, go listen to what Wagner had to say about John 10. It was awesome. Okay, He's talking about shepherds and the way shepherds lead. Patrick learned these things. And um, he has a vision. Uh, uh, even after he escapes from uh, Ireland, he goes back to uh, Britain. And he has a vision when he's in um, um, Ireland. He hears people that he knew calling out to him in a dream that said, Patrick, come back. And so he has believed in Christ, and it causes him to go back to Ireland to serve as a, uh, uh, in essence, really a missionary in Ireland. And when he goes back, he finds fellowship, he finds other believers, and he receives training, and ultimately he becomes the Bishop of Ireland. And he continues to preach the gospel faithfully and train hundreds of disciples who then go out and not only evangelize Ireland, but they spread out back to the continent. And remember what we talked about about the Dark Ages? Well, Patrick and his followers bring learning and education back to the continent. And they start monasteries where the study of the Word is important. And they copy the old uh, things that they've been able to find, the old manuscripts relating to Scripture and whatnot, and uh, they set up monasteries where people can go and study about what it means to be a Christ follower. And in doing so, they really save civilization on the continent. And uh, this is a great little book. It's called How, How the Irish Save Civilization. And I don't know about y'all, but until I read it, I never thought about the Irish saving civilization. But if you go read this book, it will give you a great picture of how Patrick and his followers uh, spread the cause of Christ throughout the continent and reinstituted learning and the love of learning and uh, the ability to study uh, things uh, because of the manuscripts that they copied. And so uh, Patrick spreads the light of truth and learning not only throughout Ireland, but back through all of Europe. And with this, we see the transition to the Middle Ages. And think about that as 500 A.D. to 1500, okay? And during that time frame, the predominant mindset was uh, known as Platonic Humanism. You know, again, we're going back to the ideas of Plato. And uh, it says, hey, the world came from God, and the world itself can lead us back to God. And truth is seen as rational, it's anchored in the world, and it's discoverable by reason. And God is viewed as uh, rational and that he created a world that's rational, which is, harkens back to the teachings of Plato. And then um, this idea says that it's also subject to rational analysis, which can be done without the supernatural, without the divine intervention. And, you know, that's where we as uh, Bible-believing Christians would go, hey, you know, we need the supernatural in our lives. 
And I don't know about y'all, but if I am left with only my reason and my abilities, I'm in trouble. And so that's a place where we'd go, this is leading us not down such a good path. Uh, I've got a picture here. This is from uh, Leonardo da Vinci's uh, great painting of The Last Supper. Okay? And this was really kind of a watershed painting in the history of uh, art as it developed the use of perspective and uh, uh, had a realism about it that had not been seen. Remember the icon I had up there of uh, St. Patrick where it was flat and it just, you know, it didn't look like anything that you'd ever seen in this world? Um, We now start to see realism creeping into painting and you see the use of... um, perspective in this painting and it all goes back to my uh, sophomore year in college where I took a history of art class that I go no wait a minute why do I have to take a history of art class it was part of my uh, English major and I just went you know man I play football I'm you know I don't do art okay it was the uh, best time in my whole whole um, college career okay and so um, it was the opportunity to uh, uh, really dive into, um, you know, how worldview is played out in even art. Okay, let's see. All right, so let's run through the Middle Ages. Middle Ages looked at uh, the opportunity to rediscover truth through rediscovering the past. And they look back to Aristotle. Actually, some of the writings of Aristotle were preserved by uh, the Muslims. And uh, we were able to, uh, the uh, people living there were able to get copies of Aristotle. And it used them as, used them as a way to look back to look at truth. And they viewed uh, uh, truth as knowable, as necessary, but the best guide to truth was rooted in the past. And so look at the, um, this slide will give you kind of a capsule of the medieval worldview. And they looked at the world as being real and good, and, and it mirrored God's nature. It was created by a good God, created men uh, to work because God worked. And we had a calling to pursue God's glory, but we were free to use the world's resources to pursue that. Okay? But that worldview started to fray, and it started to fray with the uh, uh, occurrence of just a few uh, different things, like the Renaissance as there was a rebirth of learning. It also ultimately resulted in excesses where uh, you focused on man as the ultimate determiner of things. Um, You started to see the cracks in the church as the Protestant Reformation came along. And in the discovery of the Americas and the rediscovery of an old skeptic, uh, you see the uh, Middle Ages start to fray, and there came about a momentous change as well. And so let's take a quick look at these things. So the Renaissance uh, believed that truth existed, it could be known, that the past was the best guide, and that there was a unified system of knowledge that could be uh, found. Sounds a lot like uh, what Plato said at all. But here was something different. Man became the measure of all things in the Renaissance. And I've put up here uh, a handy little iPhone app that you can get for only $9.99, and it will give you high-definition pictures 
of the Last Supper, a high-definition um, look at uh, Leonardo's Last Supper. Leonardo was the guy who was, he was the um, leading man of the Renaissance. So I thought that was interesting that the iPhone had that. And so what happens in the Reformation? Well, we had the uh, five solas, sola scripture by uh, scripture alone, Christ alone, by grace alone, by faith alone, and glory to God alone. And that mindset set apart um, the Protestant way of thinking from Catholicism. Okay, We had the discovery of the new world. Um, and in the new world, they found new people and new animals, and they start to go, no, wait, now... Here we thought all the animals that were on the ark with Noah were, were what we knew, but here are their new animals, and they're new people that we don't have an explanation for. And so they started to ask questions about the biblical account of things. And then in rediscovering uh, uh, the past, they looked again at a skeptic known as Pyrrho, and uh, they looked at uh, how can I know with certainty which was what Pirro said, we really can't know anything with certainty. And I've got pictures here of an Indian and uh, or a Native American and an armadillo. Those were things that they go, wait, th- these are different. How are these explained in the biblical account? And you start to see the fraying of the medieval worldview. And so part of that, um, as we look, this is actually a bust of Pirro, the great skeptic. Um, and his uh, system leaves in doubt whether you can know anything at all. And the Renaissance questions the method of finding truth, the Reformation breaks the unity of the church, and the New World raises questions for uh, Bible passages. And so this takes us to the modern era, and uh, we're going to wrap up with the modern era. Um, And we see Copernicus start to say things like the Earth revolves around the sun, not the sun around the earth. We see uh, the great uh, uh, French philosopher Pascal come up with a probability theory, and he says, okay, Mr. Pirro, take this. Okay, we don't have to know with absolute certainty, but probability is good enough. And we shift, see a shift in the need for certainty to the need to know, hey, the sun came up yesterday, it came up the day before that. We can say with probability, even though we don't know with absolute certainty, that the sun will continue to come up. And really, in thinking about this, he preferred the present in the way to observe things as uh, being uh, um, more dominant in a better way to find truth rather than looking to the past. And he sets the stage for the modern idea of progress, and we really see a shift from his thinking to the idea of probability, and uh, uh, then we had the elements in place that create the modern world. Uh, Newton is a part of this. As he comes up with theories of gravity and laws of motion, he lays the foundation for really a new way of thinking in Europe. And we see this played out with the rise of deism. And this views God as a clockmaker rather than a creator. He becomes one who is creator, but he's not the sustainer. He's uh, uh, not viewed as personal. He's not viewed as being imminent in the affairs of men. And, you know, what does this sound like? Deists were tolerant of anyone except those who were strongly orthodox. Does that sound familiar today? 
And we really see the application of reason in all areas of life. And we see this um, Newton's ideas about providing a mechanical explanation played out in other areas. Adam Smith in economics, John Locke in government, Rousseau in society. And this leads really to the ferment of reason, to um, where we go from uh, the world as it was to the world that's composed of only matter and energy. And this materialism or this idea is really a repackaging of the Greek idea that the universe itself is eternal. And I've got a uh, uh, picture from the uh, Berenstain Bears up here. And there's a great quote in uh, that book that says that um, nature is all that is or was or ever will be. And so, parents, worldview is in your kids' books. Okay, so you've got to read what your kids are reading. And, uh, um, you know, in doing that, in saying that, it's really just a repackaging of the way that uh, um, the Greek philosophers expressed in talking about the universal being eternal rather than God being eternal. Okay, and so the missing link, and it's appropriate that we call it the missing link, is how does man end up in this system? And uh, uh, so we end up with an idea that Darwin says that, well, we got here because we evolved. But really, Darwin's work is scientific, not scientific theory, but it's really a worldview. And then from there, it's a quick step to the um, isms of the 20th century, Marxism, communism, nihilism, existentialism, and whatnot. And finally, we end up in postmodernism. I'm going to just flip right through these because I want to leave you with this final thought. I mean, is there anything more postmodern than that? Um, you can see how art has changed from uh, Patrick to The Last Supper to here is a, an iPod ecosystem number 10, which is uh, created by the artist who is known as Bracket D. NASA B. Close bracket. That's his name. <laughs> All right. And so let me just show you this chart. It's on your paper, and it summarizes the nature of truth, where truth is found, and the goal for each one of these different ages. And with that, I'll turn it over to JP.